The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, New Leiden Universe Fiction, A Stone Age Hypothesis, and The Ring of Fire on the Shores of the New World. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Live Free or Die, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It is a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afsharirad. Today, we bring you Griffin Barber's discussion with Eric Flint, Paula Goodlett, Gorg Huff, and Bjorn Hassler about the newest Ring of Fire book, 1637, The Coast of Chaos. Barber is no stranger to the Ring of Fire series, having co-written two novels with Eric Flint, 1636, Mission to the Mughals, and 1637, The Peacock Throne. And the conversation is sure to please hardcore fans who like the inside baseball of the series, as well as newcomers. But first, the news. It's the holiday season, and between office parties, family get-togethers, and all that time spent roasting chestnuts over an open fire, we know you are strapped for reading time. So head over to Bain.com for some shorter pieces to read while waiting in line for Santa. First up, a new Leaden Universe story by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller entitled From Every Storm, A Rainbow. Senate Kalon, Delm-elect of Clan Mizel, has plans for her clan, but her mother is still Mizel in truth and will be for four years yet. When the ring passes to Senate, Despite unlikely odds, Senate must try and rebuild Meisel's foundation and standing, a tall order indeed. But despite the dire straits Clan Meisel finds itself in, Senate must remember that after the rain comes the rainbow. And if nonfiction is more your speed, check out the new article by Michael Z. Williamson, which grew out of his research into the Paleolithic for his novels A Long Time Until Now, and That Was Now, This Is Then. It's called, when is a hypothesis not a hypothesis? When it's the solutrine hypothesis. And it's free to read now at Bain.com. Stone Age Mysteries. Michael Z. Williamson's new novel, That Was Now, This Is Then, and its prequel, A Long Time Until Now, are fast-paced military SF with a heaping dose of time travel thrown in. They are also meticulously researched meditations on what it would be like to survive in the Stone Age. Williamson did a great deal of research to bring these novels to life. The thing about any prehistoric period is it is prehistoric. No records exist from the time, which leads archaeologists to speculate. In this month's nonfiction article, Williamson breaks down the solutrine hypothesis and why he thinks it's not nearly all it's cracked up to be. That's from Every Storm a Rainbow by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And When is a Hypothesis Not a Hypothesis? When it's the Solutrine Hypothesis by Michael Z. Williamson. Free to read now at Bain.com. Looking for the perfect gift this holiday season? Well, look no further. Give the Bain books lovers in your life what they really want. More Bain books with Bain books gift cards. You decide the amount, but remember, e-arcs are $15 a piece, monthly bundles, $18. 
pretty sure they already have everything? Head on over to the Bain Cafe Press Store and check out our wide variety of Bain merchandise with travel mugs, t-shirts, tote bags, hats, and more. There is something for every Bain fan. And don't forget about the Bain Challenge coins. All of this information can be found at Bain.com and act now while supplies last. And that's it for the news. Now for our conversation about 1637, the Coast of Chaos. Hi, everyone. I'm Griffin Barber, your guest host for this edition of the Bain Free Radio Hour. On this episode, we're talking to the authors of 1637, The Coast of Chaos. One of those authors, Eric Flint, is the author of 1632, the 1632 series from Bain Books, inaugurated more than 20 years ago with the groundbreaking novel 1632. It remains enormously popular. 1637, The Coast of Chaos, is the 26th novel in this series written by Eric, either alone or in collaboration with other authors. No other author or series has as many collaborations as at its heart as the 1632 books. The Granville Gazette, the magazine which expands the Ring of Fire universe every few months, has proved fertile ground for hundreds of writers to get their very first shot at professional publication. It's fair to say Eric has done more and more directly to expand the ranks of paid authors in the genre than any other author lived. Paula Goodlett is co-author for this work has been a part of the 1632 universe from almost the beginning, enjoying her retirement from the United States Air Force, where she was a long service NCO. Paula has, was one of those on the ground floor when Eric opened up the Ring of Fire series. Writing her own stories in the universe, she first helped Eric keeping track of canon and later became editor of the Grantville Gazette. She and Gorg have collaborated with Eric on several novels that comprise the What's Going On in Russia arc, uh, mainly Kremlin Games and the Volga Rules, uh, and then some additional work with Gorg Huff. Gorg Huff was, among other things, a paratrooper and office worker before teaming up with Paula Goodlett to become one half of one of the most prolific writing teams in the 1632 universe. They produced many short stories, novellas, and the series co-authored with Eric, The Alexander Inheritance, The Macedonian Hazard, and The Sicilian Coil, also all available from Bain Books. A longtime participant in the Ring of Fire, Bjorn Hassler, who also co-edited this volume, is the keeper of canon for the Ring of Fire, managing editor for the Grantville Gazette, and has penned a number of short stories as well as nonfiction articles on how to get started writing in the universe. A Matter of Security, published by Ring of Fire Press, is also set in the 1632 universe. Bjorn not only contributed two stories to the volume we're here to talk about today, he and Eric collaborated again in the editing of 1637. Ghosts of Chaos. Welcome all. So the fans have been waiting for a while Thank to you. learn what effect the Ring of Fire has on the various peoples of North America for a good long while now. The 1637 Coast of Chaos gives the readers what they've been waiting for, having been read it. Uh, but first off, the cool factor question. What part of the story you told in this volume got you going? Made you want to write that particular tale, or in the case of Yarn and Eric, tales? We can start there, Eric, if we want. Am I the only one getting really bad sound? Because your your voice just breaking up constantly. Uh, what did you like best about the story we wrote? 
or any of the stories, Eric? Say it again. What did you like best about the stories you wrote for the Coast of Chaos? Oh, um, well, the story that Gorgon Paul and I wrote is, um, is the longest story in the book. Um, it opens, uh, it, it opens the book. And all the stories in it are interconnected, which includes ours, but ours is a little different and it doesn't exactly stand it aside, but ours focuses on the Dutch colonies in, um, in North America, um, what they call New Amsterdam. Um, I'm sorry, they call it the New Netherlands. New Amsterdam was the city that later be in, in in real history became New York. Um, and Orange was the city that became Albany. But in this time period, the Dutch have. What happened in real history was that, um, uh, I forgot the exact dates, I think it was an early next century, but the Dutch and the British um, got into one of several wars they got into and the British won. And they, uh, one of the things they did was they grabbed um, those colonies from the Dutch and renamed them New York and, uh, and Albany. Um, that does not happen in our universe. Um, what happens instead is that, first of all, the English are kind of out of it in this universe. Um, what happens instead is that the United States of Europe and uh, our heroes therein make a diplomatic agreement with the Dutch. Well, not with the Dutch, with the Netherlanders. Um, the Netherlands has been reunited in our universe so that what is today, what we call the low countries are, are, are the Netherlands and Belgium as two separate countries in those days were a single country. Um, and they make a diplomatic a deal with them, basically. And the deal is that they will not bother the Dutch position in North America, but in exchange for which the Dutch have to make slavery illegal and the slave trade. Now, the issue of slavery has been lurking mostly in the background in a number of books in the series that take place in North America, the, um, but it's coming more and more to the fore. But it's been in the background of both books I did with uh, Chuck Gannon, those were Commander Cantrell in the West Indies and No Peace Beyond the Line. And uh, the book that Chuck did um, with Robert Waters, which was called uh, Calabar's War. And there's another book that is underway that I'm working on with, um, um, with Griffin and with Walt Boys, which will be the first book in a series that will directly take place in Africa. So from the beginning though of the series, although I haven't done much until the last few books, the, um, 
the leader of the American uh, who got transplanted in time, Mike Stearns, has announced from the very beginning that the Atlantic slave trade is one of the two great evils of the time, and he has every intention of possible of destroying it. And they are now beginning to do that. It's not going to be easy, and it's not going to happen in one book. But it, to some degree, starts here. And the key thing is that they moved, they removed the Dutch from the equation. And that was really important because the Dutch were one of the major slave traders in real history. Um, and if you get the Dutch out of it, then one of the things you do is you really restrict slavery in North America and to some degree in the Caribbean. You haven't touched slavery in South America, which is actually where the major part of the slave trade is happening. But you do improve the situation a lot. Um, as to what I like best, I don't know. I always like a, a story that takes on new issues and tackles them. And our story does that. This is something we've never really touched on before. Some of the characters in it will be familiar to people who've been following the series from the beginning. Um, the American nurse Anne Jefferson features in it, and along with her Dutch husband, Adam Oliaris. Um, but for the most part, the characters in our story are new characters, the, mostly Dutch characters that we develop in uh, most of the action takes place in what is today New York. Um, and um, yeah. I don't um, usually think of stories in terms of what do I like best about them. It's especially not part of a series because right. you're usually writing a story not just for that story, but the way it fits into everything else. The way it does whatever it does for the rest of the series. Yeah. How about you, Paul? Did you have a particular uh, thing that drove you to want to tell the story? Well, I really liked using Anne Jefferson. Uh, because I've always been fascinated with her as a character. And Adam himself is, you know, kind of an amazing guy. But the way this started out for me and Gorg was, Eric said, we're going to do this anthology, take these characters, send them to the New Netherlands, and do what you want to do. So that's what we did. Okay. And I don't think he really changed very much of what we did, you know, so we had a good time doing it. And that, that's mostly, I think, why we write. We just like to have a good time yeah. and do stuff that, that people don't expect. So we, honestly, with that, Gorg's our plotter. You know, I'm the speller and the, the copy editor, but Gorg is the plotter and he came up with what we did. And it was a heck of a good time. And Gorg, was that uh, for you, that was the, the plotting was fun or? Uh, partly, I just finished re-listening to the story because um, I listened to them to hear what's going on as a different way of taking it in rather than just reading it. Huh? Um, but uh, the thing I noticed when re-listening to it just the last couple of days is it's actually mostly a romance. It's the what? story, it's actually mostly a romance. 
the, the, the real core of the story is the romance between this builder and the tavern keeper, yep. both of whom are core characters with different attitudes. And, and I think probably I can identify add with in. what? Right. Add in the uh, half slave yeah. who was nanny. That's and then the young counter restaurant. I can't pronounce that word. Remonstrant. Yes. <laughs> Remonstrant. Thank you. Uh, that was another romance. She's black. He's not. He's Dutch. And geez, it was just so much fun to do. I, I was impressed by those uh, that, that those relationships and how they developed through the story. It was really neat. Uh, Bjorn, how about you? What was your cool factor? Getting to play with historical characters. I've, I've used historical characters before, but they've primarily been uh, people that readers wouldn't instantly recognize. And, and here I got to play with people who are in all the history books. Certainly. Okay, so uh, moving from there to a more general question uh, about characters as well, having mentioned uh, the uh, tavern keeper and uh, uh, builder, uh, who are your favorite characters from the book and why? Uh, it's okay to reference your own, but you could also talk about somebody else's characters if you like. We'll start with Bjorn since he went last this last time. Okay. Um. Eric Brown and Robert Waters have a Native American character uh, named Fast as Lightning, who has just been a super fun character ever since he first showed up in the Grantville Gazette. And, and, and watching his long range plans come to fruition in this book was really cool. Well, tell him where he comes from. If he won't, I'll spill the beans. He runs across a copy. I forgot how, but he runs across a copy of a comic book on, on Flash, the Flash, and he gets enamored with it. And he himself is a very, very fast runner. So he, uh, he names himself after the Flash and designs a sort of costume that as best as he can sort of replicates what the Flash wears. And I remember when I first read it and thinking, can we get away with this? <laughs> uh, you know, and then I decided, well, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's possible. I mean, people do all kinds of strange stuff. Um, and it is true that people of different cultures will adopt from each other sometimes really strange things that, that will just whatever reason hit their their fancy and they'll uh, and they'll carry it over and then of course it gets transmuted and gets reshaped to fit their own culture but he is a fun character no doubt about it Paula honestly I really really loved our tavern tavern keeper and I can't pronounce her name. Somebody else is going to have to do that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. 
I just really liked her because, you know, the builder really wants to marry her, but he's got a debt that he has to pay off and he doesn't want her to be saddled with his debt. And she's sitting there going, you know, we could do this in a couple of years and you could just get over yourself. But he doesn't until the very, very end of the book, you know, but then, you know, that's no, no spoilers. No. <laughs> it's no spoilers. Sorry. Yeah, it was. No, it was really well done that that uh, really, these people you know, who she, she was in love with him. Yep. If she was in love with him, and he was in love with her and he's standing back because, oh, my God, I don't want to give you trouble. Uh, just for information, marriage is always trouble. <laughs> it's just the way it goes. <laughs> so get over it. And Gorg, were you of uh, like mind with Paula, or do you have somebody else in mind? Pretty much. Uh, I liked um, I liked the uh, washerwoman and uh, who married, who wanted to marry him, was much more pragmatic and practical about it. Uh, the young uh, yeah, counter remonstrant, and um, I also liked the uh, an act, a historical char character. And I again, you don't want me trying to pronounce anybody's name, not even my own usually. Um, you you want uh, the the Reverend Bogardus, um, who was actually historically strongly opposed to the slave trade and got in trouble over his opposition to it in our timeline. And in this timeline, um, I, I sort of like the way that he responded to the Emancipation Proclamation, which happens fairly early in the story, so I'm not doing I'm not too much of a spoiler. Yeah, spoiler. The, uh, personally, I enjoyed the, the Dutch. really good. Yeah, the, the Dutch soldier uh, or the Dutchman yeah. who becomes a soldier, uh, his, the counter-remonstrant, yeah. his, whole, his whole kind of story arc where, and everybody's looking at him like, why are you doing this? And well, I have to do it. And it was really well done. It was very uh, uh, delicately handled and also managed to uh, portray the, the, the different divisions and separations between all of these, uh, what we call kind of like the pilgrim communities there were a lot of really deep divisions I wasn't aware of, and I kind of consider myself a, an amateur historian at least. So there was some really fascinating stuff to learn in there about the characters as well. So Eric, how about you beyond the uh, uh, fast as lightning? Mm -hmm. Beyond fast as lightning, was there somebody else that you were enamored of writing about? In this? Well, it's um, a lot of, except for the story that Paula and Gorgon and I wrote, the other stories either focus on Indians or on English settlers in, in what is English part of New England. Now, in the in the 1632 series, the, the King of England has abandoned them because basically he freaked out after the Ring of Fire when he read the history books and saw that he was scheduled to have his head cut off. Um, you know, and that too distant future. And um, so he tried to 
is trying to, he's still at it, um, um, torpedo the English Civil War and English Revolution before it happens. So one of the things he does is right away, have, uh, he arrests a whole bunch of people who were prominent later. And he arrests them before they've done anything uh, because in the history books, they're guilty of something. So one of them is Oliver Cromwell who gets thrown in and Cromwell's now escaped and he's having adventures. And there were others that, that he did that to. But um, the point being that what he then did was he sold all the English colonies to the, to the French. And the reason he did that was because the kings of England faced a particular problem. There's a lot of misconceptions people have about what the 17th century was like. And hardly that's because historians have this habit of slapping labels on periods of history. And this is the age of absolutism even though the, the, the time was ripe with rebellions, the number of absolute monarchs who managed to pull it off with no trouble was pretty much zero. And in particular, the Spanish, uh, the Spanish had a parliament, it's called the Cortes. And despite the fact that Spain has a reputation of being an absolute royal dictatorship, the reality is that legally, the Spanish Cortes had more power than English Parliament did. Um, the problem was that the king in Spain could just thumb his nose at the Cortes because the monarchy controlled the silver coming in from the New World. So he did not have to go to the Cortes to get to get money. money right, taxes. Uh, he would just, you know, get the silver and say, screw you, you can, I don't care what, what you pass, I'm just ignoring it. The British king, English king, couldn't do that. Um, the great power the parliament had was the power of the purse. And, and beyond a certain point, if the king wanted money, he had to go to parliament, get parliament to approve it. And, and, and King Charles didn't want to do that. And so in real history, he basically suspended Parliament for... Too long, that's why I ended up being beheaded. Huh? <laughs> well, yeah, long. I mean, he suspended it for like close to 20 years. I mean, he just didn't, some, he just didn't call Parliament. Mm -hmm. uh, but that, of course, caused a problem for him, which meant he was kind of broke all the time because the only income legally the king said well, they had income and things like tariffs and tolls and this and that there was no such thing as income tax you know okay. uh, much less automatic income tax so in the in the 1632 series what happened is that king charles decides he to forego all this by selling his his american possessions to the french in exchange for a bundle of money and he uses that money to hire a mercenary army, which is what he's been using to control the situation in, in England. But what that means is that the British, the English colonists were cut, uh, were cut off several years ago and they're on their own and there isn't a lot of new English settlers coming in. Um, so 
most of the stories focus on that to one degree or another. Uh, and most of the characters, many of them at any rate, this is true both of English characters and the uh, Indian characters, are, are real figures from history. They're not, they're not characters that, that we invented. Uh, some are, but most of them aren't. And um, it's, it's interesting to work with characters like that. One of the things I try to do in these books in as much as it's possible and feasible is that people tend to have a lot of misconceptions about history. Um, and um, in particular, there's a kind of bias that people have, which is that the farther back you go in history, the worse things are. Right. Which is not by any means always true. And one of the things that Gordon Paul and I tried to do in our story is, is among other things, depict the fact that in, in New Amsterdam, which did have slaves, there were quite a few uh, black people in New Amsterdam. And uh, some were slaves, some were called half slaves and, and, and some were freedmen. But racial relations were not what people think they were and, and did become later on. Uh, the position of, of black slaves in this period is, is closer to that of indentured servants. Uh, than the later slaves. And also this early in the, in the period of slavery, the, the kind of really hard bitten bigotry and prejudices that, that sank in later hadn't really, hadn't really, they started to form, but they hadn't really sunk in yet. So among other things, it wasn't that uncommon to have interracial uh, sexual relations, including marriages. Um, you know, it was, you know, it was unusual, but it wasn't sort of considered bizarre. So and it was, certainly wasn't illegal. So one of the uh, couples we have in it, and these are, are characters we invented, they're not real ones, uh, involve a Dutch um, settler who's a, a counter remonstrant, which means he's one of the hard ass Calvinists, except he's not himself hard ass about it. Um, and he winds up uh, uh, having a romance with uh, a young black woman who is a, uh, she's a servant to one of the, the major white kids to um, the central white male character, New Amsterdam character. The builder. In huh? The builder. The builder. Yeah, the builder. The builder. And, um, and no, I'm not trying to pronounce She wound up in New, in New Amsterdam instead of winding up on one of the Caribbean islands because the Caribbean islands are hellholes, um, um, even in this early period. Of, there are many ways in which the 17th century was closer to our time 
the, the 18th and 19th century. It was pre-Victorian, for mm -hmm. one thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was pre-Victorian, for one thing. So they but weren't I, nearly I, as repressed as we now, got one of things, I know one of the things I, I, it both amuses and irritates the hell out of me is when you hear people say, refer to something as pure. And they're talking about, oh, America's Puritan heritage is what explains why people are really uptight about sex. And it's like the Puritans were not uptight about sex. Sex wasn't really gonna get you in much trouble. Heresy would. Heresy would get you in a world of hurt. But, you know, sexual relations in the 17th century were a lot closer to what they are today and than they were in the Victorian era. Um, it was a pretty body time is the truth of it. Um, and, and that included very religious people. Um, um, sex hadn't yet reached the status of one of those sins that everybody really obsesses over. It, that people just didn't have a much more practical attitude for it. Well, that was, that one of was, my very favorite things about the 1632 universe is that with any luck, there will not be a Victorian era. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So uh, we have the, the discussion is kind of a good lead into the uh, the book has a note from Eric, uh, from you, Eric, saying about uh, the ahistoric characters. There are only the, pretty much the two of them uh, in most of the story uh, that were kind of created out of, out of whole cloth, at least in Bjorn's uh, uh, stories. Uh, so kind of a question for you, Bjorn, uh, uh, harder to inhabit the mind of a 17th century Puritan or, or a 17th century Native American? Harder for the, the Native Americans because their worldview is more different um, from mine than the Puritans is. The Puritans, I can sort of see much of where they're coming from, even when I don't necessarily agree with something. Um, but in the Native American culture, there's no division between the sacred and the secular. And that is just not how my head works. Gort, 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 how are you? Um, okay, well, we didn't deal that much with the Native Americans. Sure. Um, I don't know, I think the awareness, getting who, who you can, I find them all sort of equally weird. But then again, I'm sort of weird, so it doesn't bother me that much to get into that of even the nastiest characters. Uh, and one of the things that kind of came to my mind is that, you know, the, the modern idea, love is love and all that kind of thing, is very much reflected in you all's story, where it's just, you know, it doesn't matter who, but even amongst the individuals, they're trying to figure out, you know, well, will they accept me? It's much yeah. more important than what everybody else might think. Right, and the, the, the core, actually, it's not so much the debt. 
The debt is what he's telling himself. The core right. thing that holds the guy up is he really just cannot imagine any woman actually wanting him. And that's, I suspect, a more common concern than a lot, a lot of people would like to admit. Well, and and this, regardless of the time frame or the time or place, so yeah. it's, it's more about confidence and uh, accepting it. So, yeah, very, very yeah. well done. Um, so kind of a follow on to all this. And, and we've kind of talked about your favorite character, but which character from the Coast of Chaos would you most likely uh, most want to meet? Hmm. That's interesting. Oddly enough, the Reverend Bogardus, I think it is. Mm -hmm. um, I'd, I'd sort of like to sit down. I don't think I'd agree with a lot of his attitudes, but I think it would be an interesting conversation. Who? The Reverend. Uh, the Reverend, uh, who was. Bogardus? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We have two Reverends in the, uh, the, uh, the Dutch call them Dominies. Yeah. We have two prominent ones. Uh, one of them is just to back up a little bit. There was a the Dutch part of the Netherlands, as opposed to the the southern Netherlands, would have today Belgium. That remained Catholic largely, but the Dutch, those few who were ethnically Dutch, were uh, Protestants, and in particular, they were Calvinists. Um, but Calvinism has many different strands of it, and um, there were the, the ones who were tended to be more tolerant of things and the ones who were not tolerant. And those are called the counter remonstrants. And what happens in the series is the counter remonstrants lose pretty big time in the Netherlands because the Netherlands gets reunified under a Catholic king. Right. They are really, 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 really not happy about. And so a number of them are emigrating to the new world. Um, and they have um, a dominee of their own, whose name I'm blanking on, um, who's a major character in the story. And then the one, Bogardus, is, is quite a, he's, he's, he's a real historical character. He's quite fascinating. He had been there longer, and um, you're not going to find a soft-edged Calvinist. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, it's not. You know, I mean, well, it's barely it, more than a hundred years not, after Calvin. These are not Unitarians or Episcopalians, no matter how you slice it. Uh, but he is. I don't know how to put this. He is convinced that you are probably more likely to be uh, to be damned, uh, and your damnation is predestined for supporting slavery than you are for the things that the counter-remonstrants get more upset about. So he's very strongly against slavery. Um, which he was in, in the real world. One of the things he does is he makes it a point his congregation is multiracial, uh, which um, does not please other people. And the reason it doesn't please other groups of, of white settlers, it's partly race, but it's often religion 
Um, it, it's a mixture, but um, it, it's so we got these two religious figures clashing in this story. And I find them both kind of, it, it, it's kind of fun working with a guy like Bogardos because he is one of the good guys. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but oh God, I'd hate to have him for a friend. Um, uh, yeah. you know, I, I just, you know, he, he Jesus, he, he, you know, well, he's a, he's a Dutch dominie and, um, well, and, and, and just because and just because someone is a progressive for their era doesn't make them like at all <laughs> uh, acceptable and polite company these days, right? Yeah, no, it, that's uh, um, the, the character that he re that somewhat reminds me of from American history is John Brown. Um, yeah. And John Brown was a hard-ass Calvinist. He believed in predestination. Um, and he was absolutely hard-ass on the issue of slavery. And people, there tends to be this depiction of him as a crazy man. Um, and, you know, there were some loose screws there, but it is also a fanatic is closer than crazy that black people of the time uh, would comment that he was the only white man they felt ever treated them as equals. Um, most abolitionists were actually racist. I mean, they were not, they were absolutely opposed to slavery. They thought it was horrible, but it was a little bit more like being a member of the of the Society of Renter Cruelty to Animals. Right. Because it's not like they actually thought these African immigrants were, were the equal of white people. It's just they felt that they still shouldn't get treated that way. Right. John Brown was uh, was different in a lot of ways. And, and uh, black people at the time had a different attitude toward them than, than a lot of whites did. Um, but John Brown, I work with him in another series I'm doing, which is the uh, Trail of Glory series that Bain is bringing back. And uh, he's, he's a fun character to work with. Um, yeah, I, I get the similarity between him and Bogardus. Huh? I get the similarity between him and Bogardus. Yeah, the difference is that, that John Brown was much more a man of action than Bogardus was a preacher. So, I mean, John Brown would go out and kill people, um, which Bogardus wasn't doing. But um, there was a similar kind of, you've got really hard-edged characters who are nevertheless sort of on the side of the angels, so to speak. Very hard-ass angels, but, but still... Um, well, angels, when they appear in the Bible, are not, you know, nice guys. <laughs> they're not yeah, glowing, well, that's touchy yeah, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's true. That's, that's true. There are some angels in the Old Testament, especially who, uh, uh, yeah, you wouldn't want to run into a dark elf. <laughs>
7. This is Courtney Courtney with CNN, and I'm in beautiful Northfield, Vermont, where after a series of record lows, the temperature has climbed to a balmy 47 degrees, and you can simply smell spring in the air. I'm embedded with Company A of the 1st Battalion, 87th Infantry of the Army's 10th Mountain Division. The company has been given the mission of tapping local maple trees to supply syrup for our Horvath friends. I'm talking with Specialist Benjamin Putman, who is the company's designated maple tapping expert. So, Specialist, did you go to a special school to learn maple tapping? Yes, ma'am. The specialist said, smiling fatuously. It's called my mama's knee. Excuse me? I'm from about 30 miles from here, ma'am. I was born and raised in Caledonia County. So you learned maple syrup processing at your mother's knee, the reporter said, smiling thinly at the joke. I guess that makes you an expert then. But on a personal note, Since you are from this area, what do you think of the military being sent in to basically take this sap? Just following orders, ma'am, the specialist said. Just like every soldier who's ever followed an order that people might not like, like, you know, the SS comes to mind. It's not quite that bad, specialist. As you say, ma'am, the specialist said. On the other hand, I think you might want to read up on your history a bit more. The SS didn't start by killing six million Jews, started by taking their homes and businesses, got around to the gas chambers later. Why don't we just concentrate on the process of extracting maple syrup? The reporter said. I understand that it's not exactly hard. Well, it's not exactly hard, and it's not exactly easy, ma'am, the specialist said. Why don't you show us how it works? First, you take a drill of the right diameter and you tap the tree, the specialist said, knocking with his knuckles on the maple. This one is below 10 inches in diameter, so you can only get one tap in. You apply your drill and drill in just far enough to get into the wood. You don't want to drill too far, just enough to get through the bark and set the tap. Then you take your tap and a hammer and you hammer the. Oh, fudge. What's wrong? Well, see how the wood split up like that? That's bad. You don't get a seal with a crack like that. This tree's basically useless for this year. Oh, darn. What? I forgot. When it's too warm, the trees will crack if you try to tap them. I've got to go. Check on the rest of the company's work. They've been tapping all morning. If they're all split. Well, there you have it, the reporter said through gritted teeth. Even experts in this business can make mistakes. This is Courtney Courtney with CNN. And we're clear. They're going to flatten New York. Yeah, but Atlanta's way down the list. I'm not from Atlanta. I am. This is Desiree Romaine with the Canadian Broadcasting Service interviewing residents in the Trois Rivaux area of Quebec province, a major area of maple sugar production. Excuse me, sir. Excusez-moi, monsieur. Quoi? the heavily clad man asked without pulling down his scarf. 
The balmy temperatures of the day before were dropping like a rock. Vous travaillez dans l'industrie du sucre d'érable? Do you work in the maple sugar industry? Oui. And what is your opinion of the Horvath demand that we turn over all our maple sugar? What exploded from the man was a torrent of Quebecois too fast for even the Quebec native to understand. Perhaps for our English-speaking viewers? The reporter asked desperately. Pox upon English viewers, the man said in a thick Quebecois accent. Pa! What I said is that the cheese of a donkey aliens can go eat merde. We are finally paid what our sugar is worth, and they wish us to give it to them for nothing. They may nibble upon the end of my manhood, they may kiss my very hairy bottom, which has some boils. And we're having technical difficulties with the transmission from Trois-Rivaux, but here is Madeleine Batham in Ontario province speaking to... Mr. Duncan McKenzie, who is the owner of a large maple distillery here in Chapleau. Good afternoon, Mr. McKenzie. Good afternoon, Lassie. So, how is the maple tapping going? Well, unless you're a complete moron, you don't tap yet. But it's not looking so good. Really? Ugh, terrible. Weather's all wrong. Not going to get much sap, no how. No way. And we've had a real rash of injuries this winter. Lots of slips on the ice and such. I completely threw out my back carrying in firewood. Can't hardly get out of bed. You look perfectly fine. Hurts terrible. Need an MRI. But health service has backed up months. May not be on my feet till summer. And you do most of the tapping on my land, I... Probably not going to get naught this year. Terrible shame. That was another installment in John Ringo's Live Free or Die. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Thanks to Griffin Barber and praise, thanks, and gratitude to Eric Flint, Paula Goodlett, Gord Huff, and Bjorn Hassler. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Sharirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.